So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. Stay up to date with us on all of our social media channels, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on Clubhouse, where every Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific, I hold a talk based on every week's episode. So we'll see what we're going to talk about this week. And then finally, on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality for as little as $5, you can help support us and get access to our Monday bonus episodes. Conspirituality 44, Netflix and Pill. It was inevitable. QAnon has stormed HBO. Less inevitably, Conspirituality Podcast has been invited to an academic conference down under. In this episode, we'll review how the first two episodes of Cullen Hoback's Into the Storm lands and wonder about what happens when conspiracy movements come under big screen and academic scrutiny. Cullen embedded with the labyrinthine Q world for almost four years. He globetrotted, gaining incredible access to a network of social avoidance and keyboard warriors. His sympathy is both touching and problematic. Our own embedding in the wellness world, 60 years between the three of us, hasn't been quite so weird or dangerous, but it does raise a similar question. How clearly can we see the conspirituality of the world we've worked in for so long? As Cullen tries to draw out the humanity and intentionality of the QAnons, how are we understanding or missing our own subjects? Then there's the question of impact. Will America understand itself more clearly after Cullen's work? And where will the scholarship on conspirituality go after we dump our research on that conference table? In the ticker this week, we review the new Lululemon mat, report on how Imran Ahmed's team at the CCDH identified the social media disinformation dozen and succeeded in partially deplatforming conspiritualist power couple Sayerji and Kelly Brogan. In the jab, we'll be looking at the woes of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine as they approach applying for FDA approval. 
This is The Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. Well, first up in the ticker this week, it is about iterations in retail. And I'll just start by saying that before recording, I noticed that Pepsi and Peep have teamed up to create marshmallow soda this spring, which might be the most disgusting example of anything you could possibly put into your body, but also really shows how something that disgusting can get uh, marketing traction, which brings us to Lululemon. Now, we seem doomed to repeat this story ad infinitum, yet capitalism isn't as dynamic as we thought, Pepsi and Peeps aside. And the business operating inside of it are not as resilient as sometimes we perceive. And so we come to Lululemon, which has actually been surprisingly resilient, especially over the last year. Their stock price rose roughly 50% in 2020. So that means even during lockdown, overpriced yoga pants seem to sell pretty well. Now, of course, they pivoted into the broader athleisure world years ago. Still, you have to keep it fresh to compete, and now we arrive at their latest offering, a revolutionary yoga mat, or as Fast Company puts it, in a matter that I'm pretty sure is paid content placement, though I can't be certain about that. Lululemon has given the yoga mat a clever makeover. <laughs> Now, the new huh? the new $118 mat is filled with 3D ripples that are purportedly designed to, <laughs> quote, guide you through the most common yoga poses, end quote. Their concept is that by having the ripples underneath your feet, you no longer have to look around to orient yourself spatially, which they're somehow presenting as a deeper form of meditation, now, the ripples are, are carved into the mat, though, right? They're not uh, moving underneath you. No, like, it's 3D, not, not 5D. It's 3D. So okay, it's very old, it's right. old paradigm. Otherwise, they would be sort of creating, you know, ley lines and, and, uh, and right. crop circles for you in the right. air. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, for the $300 version, you get your own crop circles. It's right. pretty, pretty fantastic. <laughs> now, this isn't the idea of a... Of a um, a deeper form of meditation in yoga isn't a new concept, of course. A one marketed benefit of, say, Bikram and Ashtanga is that since you know the sequence in advance, you can meditate the entire time since there are no surprises. And personally, I take no issue with repetition as a form of hypnotic contemplation. But this strange article presents a paradox that it never solves, or I don't think it even understands. You're being sold a product that claims to do the annoying work of limb placement for you, though you're instead searching for <laughs> ripples the entire time. And I should add, you're specifically told to not overthink the ripples. Wow. So I kid you not, here's the actual prescription of this mat. Quote, users should just practice as they normally would. And over time, they'll find that their hands and feet naturally feel more comfortable in specific circles. The idea is that eventually this positioning will become second nature. <laughs> kind of like on a yoga mat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, the first studio I taught at 
uh, ever was at the Hoboken YMCA. And I really appreciated that dark carpeted basement room. It was lit only by a cheap table lamp placed in the corner. And sometimes the light bulb didn't even work. In my class, people wore sweatpants, t-shirts, whatever was comfortable. And while most yogis used mats, since it was carpeted, you didn't need to. And some didn't. Uh, Everyone knew everyone else. They focused during class and they communed before and after. And I'm not trying to romanticize the past because I'm sure spaces like this still exist, which is just a simple room filled with yoga void of pretension and fashion. Yoga that's part of life, not a lifestyle. And it's not really marketable or scalable, and it's certainly not sexy, but it outlasts trends and it doesn't worry about appeasing shareholders. And everything about this new mat is not that. And back in the aughts, I was a Lululemon ambassador for two stores in Manhattan. And I have to be honest, the staff was amazing. They actually offered me space to hold charity events a few times and they took no cut at the door. So we were able to give all the money to the charities we were working with. So I understand that within the conglomerate, real people do incredible work. And I also take no issue with earning a living selling products that bring value to your life. But when the best you have is a yoga mat with ripples, it's really reti- it's really time to rethink your existence. Yeah, it's incredible. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the Hoboken YMCA. I'm wondering, how did it smell in there that it was carpeted? It smelled like a, it didn't smell as bad as the Soho Bikram <laughs> studio that I started my Bikram practice at. I'll say that, but, um, you know, they vacuumed it, but yeah, it was, it was a YMCA. I'm realizing that between the three of us, I'd be interested to hear from you, Julian, but like yeah. we're, I think we're almost all at the age where we can remember this kind of sea shift from, uh, a kind of do it yourself yoga space that might've been in a church hall or yeah. the YMCA and then the upscale, um, you know, studio space. I didn't actually feel I had that because the first yoga studio I ever went to was Yoga Zone in New York, and they already looked like um, they were wearing Star Trek clothes. And uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and also, it was run by Alan Finger, and uh, he was a fashion photographer. Did you guys know that? No, yeah, I knew yeah. he had a history in fashion. Yeah, yeah, and actually, the upstairs it was in this old warehouse building in uh, Lower Manhattan, and I can't remember the address, but upstairs the uh, owner from Bumble and Bumble had made his start. And my understanding was that in the off hours of the studio, they actually rolled out like a a backdrop in the studio itself and did photo shoots uh, in the yoga space. So there was this crossover between high fashion and like hair and, you know, like athleisure and yoga. And that was, so that was part of my experience right from the beginning. You had a little bit of that with the inception of Jiva Mukti with, with Sharon and David coming from the punk world. It was a different aesthetic, but you still had a sort of crossover between mm. disciplines that existed from the eighties. Yeah. New but York, from, from the West coast, my first awareness of Jiva Mukti was of their advertising aesthetic. Just, it was that, what was it? The wild child of yoga, right? It was definitely, it was definitely coming out of a different mindset. And even though it was punk rock, it was still like, it had an aesthetic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even if that aesthetic was like gold spray paint on plywood so that, yeah. you know, Sharon could be on a throne or something or a dais. Alan, right? Alan Finger is South African. Yeah. 
He is, right. Yeah, and he, and he claims some South African lineage too. I think his father taught him yoga, but his father nice. learned yoga from, from, from uh, some Indian master who happened to be in Johannesburg. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and he, he strikes me as kind of the Paul Ferber of, of yoga works, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> He's really like the guy, the guy behind the people who you think actually started it. <laughs> right. Well, I love the quote in this article that you... Um, that you're citing, Derek, where they say the point of the mat is not to overthink the ripples. Although <laughs> I would, I would appreciate it. Looks, it sounds like the designers at Lululemon have overthought the ripples, and I would appreciate the opportunity to overthink the ripples at times because I think it would distract me from thinking about climate collapse or about the labor <laughs> rights abuses in Lululemon contractor factories in Bangladesh. I mean, this is a company that that uh, still isn't vetting its factories. There's like this horrible story from nineteen. 1999. I mean, the whole sort of outsourcing labor story is demonic to begin with. But uh, I mean, as 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 late as as early as two years ago, we've got stories of workers being beaten by their supervisors in in factories making Lululemon products in Bangladesh. They had so much bad press for several years. I'm surprised they're still around. Well, why, Derek? Did you get a sense of why their stock price has actually risen? Because they've had to keep all of their high end retail spaces open during lockdown. How does that work? This is, I think, the first time we've covered Lulu on this podcast, right. and I only did it because of the ridiculousness of it. Uh, the only thing I will say. Is I do know that a couple years ago they pivoted to try to expand outside of yoga into athleisure. Yeah, and right. That that could be part of the reason, but the resiliency and the increase, I, I really don't have an answer. Yeah, for that. I mean they, they they came out with clothes with like functional cashmere or something like that, whatever it was called. <laughs> Next up on the ticker, did you say Dirty Dozen? The Center for Countering Digital Hate just published a snappy report titled The Disinformation Dozen. Now, the report analyzes a sample of 812,000 anti-vax posts on Facebook and Twitter between February 1st and March 16th of this year. And it shows that 65% of that content originates from just 12 accounts. That's amazing. That's, yeah. can we just pause there? 12 <laughs> accounts. Yeah. 65%. Yeah. 812,000 posts in right. six weeks from 12 accounts. Crazy. Joseph Mercola tops the list with RFK Jr. in second place. Our familiar trio of Sayer G, Kelly Brogan, and Christiane Northrup rate in positions eight, nine, and 10, respectively. The organization, headed up by Imran Ahmed, who listeners may remember from Derek's interview for episode 10, is calling on social media platforms to do better. The report said that nine of the disinformation dozen are still active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, while only three have been removed from just one platform each. As of Monday, though, a tweet from the CCDH celebrated that Sayer G's Green Med info has been removed from both Twitter and Instagram, but his 500,000 strong page on Facebook is still standing. The report cites data from previous research showing that platforms fail to act on 95% of COVID and vaccine misinformation reported to them, and that the Instagram algorithm still actively recommends similar misinformation to users. 59.2 million people follow anti-vaccine accounts across the platforms, and just 20 of those accounts make up two-thirds of that number. 
On Facebook alone, 73% of 689,000 anti-vaccine posts originated from the disinformation dozen. Now, the study goes on to point out that Facebook fails to address the sources of anti-vaccine content. And I think this is the really big takeaway here that they've tracked it down. to like, it's not just the people spreading it. This is where it comes from. And the Facebook algorithms struggle to correctly identify the content. Before providing what are really good and actually quite funny and engaging profiles of the prominent offenders, the report makes the following recommendations. They say, deplatform the disinformation dozen, deplatform key anti-vax organizations, establish a clear threshold for enforcement action, display corrective posts to users exposed to misinformation, add warning screens when users click links to misinformation sites, institute an accountability API, and ban the private and secret anti-vax Facebook groups. I really do recommend people go check out this report. It's it's very savvy and very engaging, and there'll be a link in the show notes. And just on cue, I received uh, a newsletter from Green Med Info addressed to my pseudonym, for which I applied for it. Uh, so I'm registered under Andy. Uh, dear Andy, um, this is from Sayer G, and the subject line actually is, uh, <laughs> they're attacking me. Who will be next? First they came for Sayer. Yes, and and, and I did nothing. Uh, and then they came for Kelly. Anyway, uh, I'm reaching out to you personally because I'm undergoing a very personal kind of attack right now that may also affect you in the future in which I need your help with. And uh, they've found their own kind of propagandists to publish blog posts on how uh, Imran Ahmed is actually running what they're now calling the uh, uh, commission Wait, wait, what do they call it here? They something about digital hypocrisy or something like that. <laughs> they're calling hate extremists. Uh, yeah, they're, hate they're extremists. Right. So, so, um, so they're calling Ahmed a. You know, they're saying that he's running a digital hate group because, um, uh, you know, they've they've targeted uh, these people and un- and unfairly called Sayer and his colleagues anti-vaxxers because, of course, they're just asking questions. Nothing is as it appears. Right. You know, just yeah. sourcing through the site after you shared that newsletter. I, I, I can't believe this needs to be repeated, but if you're going to relate anyone today to the Stasi and you're going to put up pictures of Gold, uh, Goebbels, Goebbels, uh, <laughs> my inability to talk to Goebbels, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, if you're going to, if you're going to use that as an example of how you're being, um, targeted, you, you've not only lost the argument, you've just, you just really have a poor understanding of history and the people who are actually, uh, affected by by movements such as that, and given all of the gravity of the problems we're actually facing in the world today, to feel like if your thin is so if your skin is so thin that you ca- that every little bit of criticism you end up doing like ten thousand word responses that just make shit up, uh, you really you're you're in a poor spot at that point. I think it's also really. Um uh, you know, notable that Sayer is saying that uh, Imran Ahmed's 
work is defamatory. Uh, and he's not asking, however, as he asks for money, uh, a one-time donation so we can continue to serve you with information that will educate and empower you, uh, as one of his bullet points suggests. It's, he's not asking for money for like a legal challenge or to um, launch a cease and desist or for any kind of legal work. Um, he's not going to challenge any of what's actually being said about him. Uh, the, the, um, the, the play here is to whip up a kind of uh, sentiment around censorship and divert the audience to Telegram and uh, wherever else he, he's asking people to go. So I'd like to cover a fantastic article that appeared in First Draft News. It's called Disinformation Goes to Hollywood, Four Lessons from Journalism. And I think this will flow into the review that we're going to do of uh, Colin Hoback's work on the HBO QAnon special. Uh, the uh, piece is written by Whitney Phillips and Claire Wardle. And a couple of quotes off the top. Journalists covering falsehoods, conspiracy theories, and white supremacy face enormous challenges. The most immediate and vexing is that reporting on these problems can inadvertently spread false, misinfo- false information to entirely new audiences. Uh, they can normalize dangerous messages and incentivize future harms. As Melanie C. Green, a social psychologist at the University of Buffalo, has shown, the process of transportation is central to Narrative persuasion. I love this new language, uh, at least new language for me, narrative persuasion and transport. Uh, The more transported someone is by a story, the more likely they are to be persuaded by its messages. Showrunners and writers are quite literally in the business of maximizing narrative transportation. When they are considering stories that feature falsehoods, extremism, and identity-based violence, they must therefore proceed with extreme caution. So they lay out four lessons, uh, which I can, you know, really affirm from my own work in in uh, cult investigative journalism. Uh, the first one is that the most obvious place to point the camera often narrows the story. So what they're asking, um, you know, journalists and documentarians to really think about is uh, if you if you zero in on the hot spot of narrative, uh, you're probably going to exclude context. You're probably going to bypass uh, structural causes for what's unfolding in the story, and you might. You might also fa- fall prey to something that that I tend to call bad appleism, which is, you know, this notion that if the if the if the bad actor that is the focus of the sort of documentary prosecution is removed, that somehow things will be rectified. Um, Number two is that the more nuance you bring to white supremacist characters, the more risks there are. Uh, and they describe these risks as being the risks of uh, normalization, as in, you know, these are just normal people who get caught up with, you know, a bad crowd or who become uh, indoctrinated in ways that they, you know, wouldn't otherwise if, if you know, if circumstances were different. But I think the point that they're making in this article is that there's a lot of people who who, uh, brush up against you know white supremacist ideology or against QAnon and don't wind up becoming white supremacists themselves and they don't wind up becoming uh, capital stormers and there's also this question of well who gets cut from the examination if you spend a lot of time on the bad actors uh, they say here that um, in lesson three that light doesn't reliably disinfect uh, the quote is when light successfully disinfects 
it's, it's typically because the storyteller and audience are in basic agreement about what's good for society and what's detrimental. Uh, but when there's a lack of agreement, light isn't a disinfectant. It's publicity, helping spread the illuminated messages to wider audiences. I think the three of us could basically paste that above our desks and contemplate that every day because... Um, it's a really, that's a really sort of powerful and subtle statement, especially when we think, at least when I think about uh, how we bond or meld with our own audience and how we, the fact that we're in basic agreement about what's good for society, as the quote says, um, uh, you know, we, we'll tend to feel like we're doing well in terms of disinfection. But, you know, for those of us who don't fundamentally agree with, with what we're saying from the, um, from the outset that, you know, blowback effects or boomerang effects can also be there. Uh, the fourth lesson is that tragic personal narratives aren't automatic public services. Uh, and the basic sort of calculus here is that the public service of any piece of journalism of reporting will rise as the sensationalism of the story falls. Interesting. I mean, there's, there's a couple questions that come up for me. Uh, one is, it are you suggesting that there is some kind of essentialism at play with regard to, you know, who gets deep into white supremacy or QAnon or storming the Capitol, that, that there's, there's a problem with trying to figure out the uh, external factors that may have gotten them there? I think that narrative focus actually tends towards, narrative focus upon individuals yep. tends towards a kind of essentializing uh set of questions, right? Like, yeah. who is this person really? Uh -huh. What are they really about? And that can't help but evoke a kind of empathetic response. Which I don't necessarily see as a problem if we can start to, like, is, is there a way that we can tease apart the person from the ideology they've become possessed by? Well, you know, the, the example that comes to mind for me is that when I was reporting on, you know, Patabi Joyce assaulting uh, mm. students every day of his career, people would say, um, people would automatically sort of turn to notions of his intention. Well, mm. you know, what was he really feeling? Sure. What was uh, going on for him? Was there domestic abuse in his own background? Was he sexually abused as a child? Um, there's almost like a, a, a... That's a sleight of hand. Yes, I know, but it's a cultural sleight of hand that yeah. seems to, uh, I don't know, it, it's like a bug in the the structures of, of, of storytelling and journalism on the whole, where suddenly when a criminal is held up for examination, uh, the focus just tends to... I see. Provoke these questions about intentionality and inner nature. And is he really a bad guy? And, uh, you know, could he be mentally ill or could he be mistaken? And, and that just, those questions are all interesting, but they can't be resolved by the narrative itself. They can only draw people to it as points of interest. Those questions are very pertinent right now in America with two mass shootings in a week because the motive story overrides the fact that we need gun control. So it distracts from, That's a, and mm -hmm. it is it distracts in a in a bunch of different ways because the gun control people can, uh, you know, um, I don't know they can they can focus on his character as being as being uh, or or the characters of the shooters as being outliers or you know they they. Um, uh, 
the, the problem the problem was inherent to them rather than to the structure of gun availability or it can go from or it can go the other way where where there's all kinds of speculation made about the guy's mental illness or you know how much he's hurting or uh, how much he he um, uh, how, ma- how many social services he needed and couldn't take advantage of and you know the more time that's spent, on all of those questions, the less time, as Derek, you're suggesting, is spent on the actual policy issue, right? Which yes. is, what are you going to do about what are you going to do about there being more guns in America than there are people? In 2020, 40 million guns were sold in America. Yeah, the year we were in lockdown, 40 million right. guns. <laughs> well, right. it's also the year of uh, of people preparing uh, for for civil war. <laughs> Fuck's sake. And this question around, like, just one more thing about Patabi Joyce, this question around his intentionality even got down to the point where people would talk about how, uh, well, he couldn't be sexually assaulting people because nobody actually saw him have an erection for example. So, I mean, that's a total misunderstanding of what sexual assault would be anyway to begin with. But the focus on it was on his body so intently and what it wanted and what he might have been, you know, meaning in the context of his supposed ethics or his celibacy or whatever, that um, the the actual bodies of the survivors were completely sidelined. It wasn't about their needs or, or what, what actually happened to them or how their how their lives had been had been uh, traumatized. The our weekly segment on the crucial COVID vaccine and the misinformation conspiritualists love to spread about it. AstraZeneca's woes continued this week with reports that the Independent Data Monitoring Committee flagged their recent widely reported statistics from American Phase 3 trials. Now, only this committee, which is overseeing all American vaccine trials, can see behind the double-blind controls in place for these studies while they're being conducted. And they then share this data with the companies after the trials have concluded. So in this case, AstraZeneca failed to include that updated information in their press release, instead choosing data that showed a higher efficacy percentage, wouldn't you know it? Calling this an unforced error, Tony Fauci, who was CC'd on the scolding email to AstraZeneca, said the outdated data was just a little better and that the more recent data wasn't bad, but it didn't make them look quite as good. Now, this comes, unfortunately for them, after several European countries halted distribution of AstraZeneca over concerns about blood clots. Those turned out to be occurring at no higher than the population's background rate. AstraZeneca immediately issued a public statement saying they would cooperate fully with the data monitoring committee to correct the error. But this is really an example of how mistrust of medical science, especially vaccines, gets perpetuated. You know, and this is just so tone deaf by the company. And it really, it's one of the things that makes me really understand why people are skeptical of pharmaceutical companies and the medical industry in general. But especially right now, given the climate that we're in and knowing the growing fervor of anti-vax devotees, to do this is really irresponsible. And it just, it just, this one gets me because the, the, just be honest with the data and you're going to have more people have some faith in your institutions. I, I want to get a better picture though of what 
what mm-hmm. it what it actually looked like. So mm-hmm. so you're saying, Julian, that that AstraZeneca failed to include the updated information in their press release. Are we talking about like a one page presser? Yeah, it's, it's basically just listing like here here are the results. We had this much percent efficacy, this many side effects, etc. So is it possible that it's like a like a communications error? Uh, I mean, they do default to outdated data, which happens to make them uh, look better. Yeah. But if, if they had the press release prepared with the prior data and simply didn't update it, is it possible that this is actually an honest mistake and, and somebody has gotten fired in, in a real hurry? I think that's definitely possible. Right. Or there's so many layers of copy, copy, you know, uh, copy editing and and, and uh, controls over communications that that couldn't possibly happen. What, do you have any sense about that, Derek? Uh, no, I'll just say that if that were the case, I mean, there, that's a potential argument, but it's still to my, in my eyes, not an excuse. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what does it actually look You're like? You're wondering about their intentionality. I, I'm, I'm wondering about, well, because everybody else is wondering about their intentionality, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, so... Yeah, so so interesting. It's a colossal fuck up, and it's something yeah. that should. That's it's like the one thing as a vaccine company right now you should never do is make a exactly. mistake like this that makes it look like you're trying to hide something about the vaccine. All right, so we are going to take a look at Q into the storm. This is Cullen Hoback's HBO documentary six-part series. There's been two episodes released so far. I think they're going to dribble them out two at a time over the next uh, two Sundays. Uh, This guy was embedded for three or four years with some of the main players at the center of the QAnon movement. And and the process of embedding and what it actually means and how that timeline plays out is really, really important for what we actually get and what, what we see in these opening episodes. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'll, I'll say probably when we get to it is that, you know, we should really know what it means to follow QAnon in 2017 or 2018 and start compiling footage and not really know what's happening, but know that it's really, really weird and interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, before we get there, how did you, what did you guys think? Like, what were your general impressions? Well, my top line impression is that the documentary has really humanized the characters. And what kept coming up for me is Nomadland, which is up for Best Picture this year, which is kind of a heartwarming tale of migrant workers, meaning uh, Americans who have to travel around the country to find jobs and they live in their RVs. And the, the film is a very like, look at how these people bond. The book though goes hardcore into Amazon's terrible labor practices and how they've created the gig economy. And none of that was in the film. It's very whitewashed. And in fact, in the film, in the very early, uh, very early part of it, they, they film inside of an Amazon factory. And my wife was like, what, how did they get access to that? And as the film unfolded, I realized it was like, oh, cause Amazon probably read the script <laughs> before because there's no way that if they had read the book, they would have allowed it to be filmed there. Right. And I, I, I mentioned all of this just simply because 
as of now, and hey, we're, we're a third in, so we have four more, but I'm seeing way too much humanization of the characters, which is fine. They are people and we should know their stories, but I'm seeing very little about the, the real world damage mm-hmm. that QAnon has done and the way it's being set up right now is just to, in a sense, glorify them in some capacity. And that, that's the most problematic aspect to me. There, there are some some lines that I that I think they're trying to straddle in terms of how they've chosen to make this, and so there's one there's one stream that's going on, which is this very very much like wanting to give you an immersive experience of online culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the whole the, the and I know you're going to talk about the opening credits, Matthew. The whole way that they've done that artwork, uh, the way that they show you the different you know the difference between four chan and eight chan, and the way they they the way the the quick cuts, the whole production and editing style, I think, really sucks you into this world. Where to go along with what Derek was saying, there there is a kind of heady, exciting sense of these underdogs participating in something that becomes very exciting and, and important seeming. Uh, so they're straddling that line. And then they have this other thing, which I actually think is quite effective, which is the going in episode one, which is going back and forth between the experts and sort of explaining the history and then also interviewing the, uh, the, the true believers and the, and the bakers who are participating in that. It, it, and it takes us into their world without having editorial commentary and maybe that's part of what you guys are getting at in terms of the humanizing like it just shows them but I I do feel like there's something effective about going back and forth between oh here are the people who are involved and then here's this sort of historical pulled back expert analysis. Well we do have Derek uh, not an extensive but I think a very impactful opening montage of Capital Storming probably using footage that Cullen is taking himself because it is, I haven't seen it. Uh, I mean, there's so much footage that I haven't seen, but uh, it, it is, um, it feels kind of like saving private Ryan, <laughs> the opening of that. It's, it's very so disjointed, brief, right? It's very brief, but we get this sort of explosive indication of where this is going. Yeah. And but I the wonder, problem, I, I had yeah. a real problem with that. I'm sorry. I wanted to, I wanted to mention this because he says the storming of the Capitol. And then he says the storm and he makes it seem the, the storm that Q had, had prophesied. I think he says it makes it seem as if what happens at the Capitol was the coming true, even though, yes, it's the culmination of that part of the story that didn't sit well with me. And then the fact that it was just briefly mentioned and then we're off into all this other stuff for the next two hours. Do you mean that, and do you mean that because the Capitol storming is, is kind of like um, a spectacular event in the timeline, but really the, the full cultural effect is really shouldn't, shouldn't be reduced to that. Yeah. I mean that, but I also mean that all of Q's prophecies absolutely failed. Right. The fact that people who were captivated by QAnon were involved in storming the Capitol didn't mean that Q, some, any aspect of Q's prophecy came true. It failed. Right. But glorification, um, Derek, like, uh, didn't you get this overwhelming feeling of nausea from all of the principal characters? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who would be attracted or like, um, we're not, we're not, I don't, I don't feel like we're, we're being shown a club that anybody wants to belong to. It really dives into them personally. And maybe there is some way of that that's going to transform into understanding the conditions that led to hmm. the creation of this. I mean, you, you do see that uh, in parts, especially 
when you look at the origins of the, I, I forget what the name of it, the comedy platform that led to 2chan, that led to Anonymous, that right. they, they lay out a very clear timeline. But what I'm missing is any sense of the social conditions, the racism mm. and xenophobia in America mm. that underlie, you know, you see, you see the, you see the people who've been indoctrinated into QAnon and then you see this sort of orientalism of the people who are in the Philippines and Japan and they're, they're the ones behind it and they've, they're expats that have moved there, but you're not, you're not really seeing any of the social conditions come out. And that's, that's really troublesome. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the things in that montage, uh, history of you know something awful leads to four channel uh-huh. leads and so on and so forth. Uh, it, w- there are a number of really super ugly details that are left out, and they're left out, I think, to probably not complicate some of the story that Frederick Brennan brings mm-hmm. to the table, uh, because Wizard Chan, which was one of his first boards, was yes, it was an incel board, but the incredible misogyny and rape culture material that was popular on it, uh, it has been a major driver of the misogyny of those, or, or its or its emblematic of the misogyny of those boards. Um, and, you know, there's some, there's, there's some flashes, I don't know whether it's in the second uh, episode or uh-huh. not, of, of what the actual boards look like and, and how abject the, the imagery and the humor is. But I don't think we get a clear sense of how many lives were actually ruined by campaigns that emerged from that culture. Including game, including including Gamergate, right? Yeah, yeah. That aspect of it almost seems like it substitutes for what Derek's talking about. So that instead of the social conditions and 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 trends and racism and things like that, you have just these moments of really shocking imagery of the kind of stuff that was posted on the boards. That's more kind of lurid than any kind right. of social political analysis. Right. I mean, one of the things that really struck me, I don't know how this uh, landed for you guys, was um, he opened with a sort of text slide, uh, a typing text slide. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how you, it's it's in that um, sort of green screen programming coder um, Matrix. Uh, aesthetic, right? Uh, where, he, where he prints drop 885 on the screen, and this comes from March of 2018, and it was, everything has meaning, this is not a game learn to play the game and he left it up there for a long enough beat that i had this sense of like oh wow all of these people who grew up you know on the chans and you know nascar and uh, football and and whatever they were doing in their rust belt towns were suddenly exposed to a kind of zen poetry for the first time i had seen that in the q drops before but it 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 hadn't really like struck me the the same way in the gut that oh there was something mystical about the diction here that i think made some of these people feel like they were gaining access Access not just to the mysteries of the deep state, but the mysteries of their own deep psychology. And I'd never really sort of, uh, you know, and maybe see, and maybe seeing some of the some of the actual uh, influencers and bakers gave me that sense as well. That oh, if I tried to get inside their bodies and think and think, what would it feel like uh, to be James Craig and or Craig James and uh, and come across this thing and be filled with a kind of 
thrill or excitement about mysteries unfolding somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that sensation just completely overrides the fact that, you know, in the underwash of all of this stuff is, is violent anti-Semitism and everything else. I'm going to talk about this in the transition when we talk about academics, but specific to language, what you just referenced is that maybe for the first time, these people also felt that they suddenly had a semantics that was specific to them and they understood mm-hmm. a secret language. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole the whole section, one of the most revealing sections, uh, two actually revealing sections, one was... Uh, you know, the low tech message boards, which you mentioned, and the fact that they, how many boomers they appeal to, whether you were talking about the actual chans or the aggregators, but the, it, it kind of harkened to uh, when the internet started in the 90s. It's more of an internet that you can understand. It's not, it doesn't have all this flashy technology. So if you're of an older generation, it, it kind of speaks to that nostalgia. And besides that, though, one thing we, I mean, we cover with all of the cults and conspiritualists we talk about is there's an insider language Mm -hmm. and everything about this when they, when they, the other revealing part is when the moment a Q drop happens, how those Q tubers immediately get online to, to try to translate it and how they go back and forth about that. And the excitement of the translation seems to be a driving Mm -hmm. factor here. Totally. I mean, there's, there's a, there's, there's a really interesting back and forth here that, that I'm thinking about, you know, that, and, and I've, I've brought up this concept before. I feel like the Q drops are a kind of slow form of digital cold reading, right? Where, where the, the Barnum statements are put out there and then they get interpreted and then they get matched with current events that they happen to fit with. And just like with psychics and astrologers, most of it actually misses the mark, but that's, this seems to be the sense of escalating sense of uncanny accuracy for the ones that hit. And that then in turn feeds back and informs what the next drops are going to be about, just as you would with cold reading. In this case, it's the dark underbelly that predates today's social media and seemed to always uh, almost kind of self-select for the antisocial, disenchanted, angry, lonely, perhaps perverse, not particularly smart, I hate to say it, or interesting people who found a sense of belonging via the skill set of trolling and ugly inside jokes. Um, and and, and I, I just find this really interesting in terms of how it then overlaps with more contemporary social media and all of the stuff we cover where there's the same sort of thing of of putting out you know, channeled readings or, or predictions about what's going on in the world or, or, or a kind of Zen poetry, right? And then responding to how your audience feeds into that and all these influencers who, who gained enormous followings as a result of getting red-pilled. I mean, and it feels too like, like Derek was just saying, they found a secret language. And, and Matthew, you were saying that for the first time, this demographic suddenly had those neural circuits activated that went, oh, there's, there's hidden layers of deep meaning that are exciting somehow, right? And they are cognitively scrambling in ways that the literature, even the most psychedelic literature that they might have been exposed to, if they were Christian, for example, would not have ignited. Yes. Like the what's the, the the sort of the most extreme literature that you can get into as uh, as an evangelical is revelation. Uh-huh. And what is and what is revelation but the a series of 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 dreams that St. John Absolutely. has that are going to predict the future. But 
what? You know what they don't do? You know what Revelation doesn't have? It doesn't have this kind of meta-analysis of who the reader is, or um, Revelation does not use the second person address. Uh, mm-hmm. Suddenly, suddenly, like all of these guys are being introduced to the voice of Alan Watts or something like that. Yes. And 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 so they they have to feel, I think, that that they're getting something uh, sage-like out of yes. this process. And there's even this moment where where Craig James is talking to his wife yep. uh, about how the guy, these guys never go on uh, the Chan boards, actually, or most of them don't. Uh, and he says to her, or Colin asks him, you know, how do you feel about going on these these boards that are filled with child pornography and all of As this? As a Christian. Shit? As a Christian, right? And he turns to his wife. He turns to his wife and he says, he says, well, I just, you know, I'm very grateful that I have the support of my partner who understands that I'm doing something, you know, that, uh, that, that has to be done. And she kind of nods very demurely and, mm-hmm. and obediently and assents to not only the fact that, well, he has the nobility to be able to go into these dark places, but also the payoff is that he's becoming kind of a sage. Yes. He's, he's becoming kind of a priest or something like that. This is the other thing I wanted to say about that. Even though the Chans are this nihilistic trolling kind of domain, right? Boiling underneath all of that is this childlike longing to be part of something noble and significant. And these cryptic breadcrumbs spawn a movement that also relied on the on the capitalist enterprises that sprung up around it, right? These bakers all becoming very influential YouTubers. Totally, But it right. made me think of how Obama's electoral process was in some ways driven by this younger campaign sensibility who knew how to use email marketing and do grassroots funding and how pop culture references and digital campaigns and rebellious counterculture activism around freedom and tyranny was co-opted from the left very successfully by the Trump campaign. And to me, that's the real story of this early phase of, uh, of, of what was going on with, with Pizzagate and the Chans and all of that. You bring up childish though. The one thing that jumped out at me and, and I will say, I mean, I am into the documentary. I will finish it. There's a lot yeah. of value in it. So my criticisms are specific, but there is a lot to, to celebrate here. And the one editing thing is just showing that it, if it does turn out that they're making the case that, that Jim Watkins is Q, which it seems that they're building toward, uh, how just incredibly immature this man is. I mean, he, you know, he draws a penis tattoo on somebody's arm when he first meets them in order for him to work with him at one point. He romanticizes Archie Bunker as a great time in America because he just said whatever he wanted. Um, you know, he also he, he doesn't realize that Archie Bunker was the fool of that show. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Archie no, Bunker, no, was, he's yeah, the hero. Yeah, no, yeah, no, he's the hero. Right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 also just the fact that I mean, he's setting it up very well to show just how he lies because uh, Watkins says that he hasn't been to pay, he hasn't paid attention to politics in months, yeah. but he's wearing a MAGA hat as is his yeah. son. They show it off, and just talk about. Um, peak conspirituality, the man funds 8chan in part from his pig farm where he's planning to build a yoga studio. I mean, it's just like yeah. everything about the, the <laughs> definition of conspirituality is wrapped into this right now. Well, I wanted to say too that episode episode two for me was was very slow, and I think it, it kind of goes to some of what you're both saying. It felt like a, a meditation on the, the the Watkins pair, you know, and on Frederick Brennan, and they're kind of 
temporarily intriguing, but it, it did make me wonder how long an audience not already sort of really into this would would stay tuned into that. Because I, I found episode two really dragged. I think, yeah, I hadn't really thought about the sort of initiate to QAnon. I mean, I'm partic- I'm very fascinated by by the Watkins, and so I'm kind of glued to it, especially to Ron, who has this strangely dissociative uh, affect, and there's all of these long shots on his enigmatic, partially smiling face. Um, it's like we're staring into... Uh, I don't know internet culture itself in all of its and all of its irony and but I'm I, I'm constantly wondering what these guys' values are, uh, what he loves, uh, what impresses him. But then we find out that you know uh, he's actually a meditator as well. He talks about you know doing practices to control his ego so that he doesn't um, get wrapped up in in people criticizing him online. And um, there's so there's so this this priest like quality as well or this kind of internet monk quality that that he he carries off that's that's super super interesting and i also think lends um more kind of drive to this this notion that people involved in QAnon are actually seeking something that is ineffable or from another time and place yeah the 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 other thing that I found moving through episode two was the the free speech conversations. Right. And, and this was really illustrative of how amoral and decontextualized the concept is on the right. And especially in this kind of online subculture twice, that very famous Evelyn Beatrice Hall quote, which is usually attributed to Voltaire was evoked, right? That though I, though I detest what you say, I would die for your right to say it Uh, as if somehow hosting a cesspool of criminal, hateful, violent excreta is somehow linked to democracy and freedom from, real tyranny in the world. So in terms of early impacts from uh, Hoback's documentary, here's something fascinating. I follow a Twitter account called Q Origins Project. I'm not sure who runs it, but um, uh, it's it's pretty central within the QAnon research community. Uh, and they posted a link to to a blog post that was written by one of the founders of Patriot Soapbox. Now, her name is Christina Urso. She goes by the uh, the handle Radix. And she, along with her husband, ran, uh, his name was Pamphlet Anon. I uh, can't remember his name at the moment, but uh, they ran together a 24-hour QTube channel for years before they got deplatformed. Uh, and here's what their blog post suggests is that they've actually now gone full blue anon. Uh, and what I mean by that is that they have started to endorse the series of explanations put forward by uh, people like Dave Troy and Jim Stewartson and Steve Hassan, who's been a guest on our show, but also Daniel Morrison, uh, who, who have these emerging theories Theories that Q is a psyop, an organized political psyop involving Russians and uh, you know augmented reality game enthusiasts, and that the whole thing concretely tracks back to the Cold War. And the comment I think from Q Origins Project is really salient here. Uh, they say if your way of thinking about QAnon is close enough to the conspiracy theorists' worldview that they can go, yeah, let's repurpose that. It's <laughs> Because you are selling a conspiracy theory, the emphasis is still on shadowy actors manipulating us from afar. 
And and uh, they point out that uh, Radix actually quotes something like 15 paragraphs of Daniel Morrison's Medium story. I think the title was uh, QAnon is a PSYOP. Uh-huh. Or, or and we know who's behind it. And we know who's behind it. And uh-huh. I remember reading that and having it sent to me and being tagged in it over and over and over again. And I could never make head nor tail of yeah. that of that article. It seemed, and then there was a follow up article that said resources, uh, and it, it was supposed to be the footnotes for the article. And basically, it was just this sort of wall of disconnected screenshots that basically looked like the Q map, but made by yep. a Bernie Sanders person or something like that. <laughs> uh, so to me, like it brings up this problem of, of mimesis, right? Because when you look at the blue and on stuff, when you look at the meticulous and very impressive work that, you know, people like Dave Troy have put together, it feels like there's the same urgency at uncovering a very specific nefarious plot that that QAnon itself embodies. And this makes sense because QAnon is, is destroying lives and provoking domestic terrorism. And so the response to it is going to have this drive to it. But what I notice is that these these parallel or opposing research streams are both embedded in the online world. And so the research that, you know, that, that, uh, now (laughs) these QAnon supporters are now quoting to sort of let themselves off the hook is like an endless tracking of links. There's lots of sharing around of URLs as if the heart of people's motivations and passions are like fully contained online. Uh, but that's not how Hoback works. That's not how this documentary came together. It's not how I work when I'm doing investigative work on conspiritualists or occult abusers. Um, that's just not how um, slow media that you know has to really look into corroboration and who people are and what they're likely to do and not do. That's not how that works. So for me, I can just say that a story might start with a piece of online media. Uh, somebody posts a blog post. Kelly Brogan releases her message to dispel fear. And I realize, oh, that's a conspiritualist message. Uh, but then it really has to start with an interview. Like you've got to start, you've got to find a person to talk to. You've got to talk to them in real time about the content you have, who's associated with the content or making the content. Uh, you have to feel out who they are, what they're about. Um, you have to figure out what they're willing to attach their names to. But if you do just pure online research, people can be super split in terms of, you know, their persona and what's really going on. Transparency is a big issue. So if I get a a hit on a story that, you know, looks like it's promising or looks like it's worth pursuing, I book the interview and you can't talk to the person without some fundamental trust. But that's not required when you're viewing their online content. Um, and I, and I don't know about you guys, but when I'm just looking at people's online content, I have an inherently skeptical vibe around it, uh, especially when so much online content is just like soul destroying. It, it's boring. There's so much of it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I, there's just this big difference between embedding yourself, doing the interviews and then kind of doing the, the, the internet searches that, that create a plausible picture, but don't really get to the depth of, uh, well, you know, who's, who's, who's most likely to be involved and who is really there when, and how can you actually corroborate it? Um, 
I'm just talking about a far smaller, a slower process. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why I think Hobach is at this thing for, for four years now. So much history has never been accessible to us before at any one time. Exactly. Like, I mean, this has right. been, gro- this has been growing, but I mean, now the amount of history, and I remember about a year and a half ago, I interviewed Dan Carlin of hardcore history and it was a great talk. But the one thing I asked him was that his concerns over, how does someone a hundred years from now look back at today and suss out what actually happened? And his argument was that, oh, it's just like all of history. The cream will rise to the top. And at some point, the scholars will look at it and will say that this is the actual representation of history. And I, I, I just never agreed with that. I'm like, how do you make heads or tails of all of the information that's available right now and understand? And I also wondered to your point, Matthew, when people do do these online searches, how many people actually go past the first page of Google? It's a great question. I mean, I, I remember listening to in the CBC podcast that covered uh, MK Ultra. I think it was called uh, Raven's Crag, or maybe it was just called MK Ultra. But anyway, they tracked down the investigative journalist who in the 1970s uh, through freedom of information requests figured out who the doctors were who were working for the CIA. Now, this is what they had to do. When they got the documents, they were all redacted, but because the documents uh, were were typewritten on, you know, um, uh, you know, old school typewriters where the spacing was uh, predictable, uh, they could tell how many letters in each name there were that had been redacted. And so they actually, they took the time to figure out uh, how to match names to blanks in some process that I can't even imagine having the patience for. And they did it one scrap of paper at a time. And, and what I'm going to suggest is that the kind of dedication that you have to, and the doubt and the skepticism towards your own success that you would have to apply to that process of making connections and, and the, and the monumental and daily failures that you would, you would encounter in trying to make those connections, those would all be very, very good um, humility factors and and uh, uh, I would say like um, supportives for y- you not jumping to conclusions because but you're not because, allowed to fail anymore and that's that's part of the problem oh, even wow, what Julian yeah. referenced about AstraZeneca it's just like one bad press release that they should have handled better is now going to stain the process for months or years to yeah, come. Totally. Like, humility is a word that doesn't exist in everything we're talking about in the conspirituality circles. That is, that is like humility is equal to evil to them. Yeah. And, but I think, and it's weird because if we have so much access to information, why doesn't it make us more humble? Is it because Mm. it blinks up in front of us and we can read it all? Is it because we don't actually have to go to a library in a different city and look at microfilm? Is it like, I I don't, it, if it feels like the internet is serving us up our hubris moment by moment in real time and making us think that we know more than we do. Because the thing that I've found in every single investigation that I've done is that the more interviews I do, the weaker the case gets. 
The more <laughs> interviews I do, this is just what happens. If you think you know what's happening, if you really think you know what's happening, just interview somebody else. If you really think you've got a clear line on how to corroborate some facts, just do another interview. That's part of why we put timelines on things, right? Now, because- Matthew, does, does, does that trend kind of start to go the other way once you've gone through the belly of the beast enough? Yes, there is a turning there is a turning point, but but I would say that any good story is really ripe when you've had uh, a sort of uh, a, a valley of, uh-huh. of dis- disillusionment and uh-huh. losing and losing the path. I think the people who made the film Spotlight did a great job of that uh, when they're talking about how hard it was for those those journalists in Boston to put together their case against the Catholic Church, how many roadblocks they came up against, how many interview subjects turned them down, how many uh, 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 conflicting stories they got. I'm I'm just, what I would like to say to our listeners is the harder the journalist's job is and the slower they take at doing it, the better story you're going to get. Because if they can last, if they can last it out, if they can stick it out to the end of that process, you know know that they have been humbled. You know that they've been on their knees and they have had all of their assumptions questioned. Speaking of journalism, Matthew, if you're going to be a good journalist, I think you should uh, define microfiche or microfilm for uh, younger <laughs> listeners. Oh my gosh. Do you know, uh, do you, do you, Julian, do you know microfiche? Do you know microfilm? Of course. I, oh, right, I grew okay, up, right. in, I grew up in, a, in an ass-backward colonial country. <laughs> right. My, well, I had a microfiche machine in, in, in our house because my dad was, uh, well, he still is a, a Russian history scholar. Nice. And, and the only way that he would have these Stalin era journals and and uh, and newspapers was actually on uh, microfilm and microfiche, uh, and it had this smell to it, and it was like haunting. It was it was very early internet actually because there was so much data on those little cards and on those spools. Yeah, it's what serious researchers turned to right before the yeah, internet, right. Yeah, but but I really appreciate what you're saying, Matthew, in terms of the you're really drawing a, a very clear contrast between a, a kind of quick fix, self-satisfied confirmation bias style of making connections that actually has more in common with conspiracy theorizing as opposed to real investigative journalism. It, it does, because what it does is it wants to put together a, a series of puzzle pieces based mm-hmm. upon themes and mm-hmm. and the and human beings and their stories, they don't fucking fit together. They're yeah. just—it's just not like that. Uh, people, people are strange. They change over time. They change what they say, um, and and yeah. So so if you can if you can corroborate through all of that uh, and not make assumptions about uh, hid, hidden people, like okay, for instance, for instance, how many times has the figure of Thomas Schoenberger and uh, Lisa Clapier been uh, central to these sort of um, conspiracy? spiritual narratives around who's at the center of QAnon. Uh, it's like all over the place. And I have never, ever seen anybody interview any of those people. I've never heard anybody uh, directly quote them. I haven't seen any sort of embedding. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the interviews. I want to see the interviews. All right, Derek, Julian, uh, in a few hours, we'll be giving our first academic panel uh, at Deakin University. 
in Australia. It is the Conspirituality in Australia project. Uh, Derek is going to be covering, uh, you're going to be covering um, bad science in conspirituality. Julian, you're going to be looking at belief systems and I'm going to be covering social dynamics. Uh, is this your first academic conference? I spoke at Harvard for a conference on hip hop in Africa back in oh, like 2005. Nice. Nice. And uh-huh. I've spoke at the University of Arizona on global music around the same time. So I've done a few with music and actually I'm going to talk a little, that's more my wheelhouse, but, uh, so, but this will be my first on conspirituality. That's for sure. Yeah. And Julian, <laughs> it's, it's my first on both counts. Right. Yeah, yeah. I've, I have, uh, because of, because of some yoga reporting that I've done, I've done one of these before and it's a uh, kind of, it's an interesting environment, uh, to transition from what we do here to, uh, okay, just the facts, just the facts, ma'am. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but what do, what do you think, like, what do you think, will happen with the work that we do as it moves into scholarship? Like, what do you imagine or hope people, uh, you know, researchers who have lots of time and really good methodology will will dig into? Well, I'm going to sort of mention a concern, and it's a, it's a valid one, and I think a lot of good will come out of it. But I, I really, when we were thinking about this week's episode, what really struck me was what happens when fringe, cult- fringe cultures go to the mainstream and then from the mainstream, they get picked up by academia. That's usually the process of what happens. And so, for example, I always think back to like early Nirvana Right, where the, the original fans of Bleach were mad when <laughs> Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, you know, and then there, there was the posers and, and it kind of happened with QAnon where when Pastel Q came out, the original Q people uh-huh. were like, you know, what are the, who are these people? This, is, this isn't your conspiracy theory. But it, it, I get, I'll get back to what I referenced before, which was language and how language works in subcultures and how some of that gets lost in the main culture. And I will talk about it through a couple of different musical genres, because this is a repeating theme that happens with music. For example, hip-hop is an extension of reggae music, which is an extension of Nyabingi culture from Africa and Indian culture meeting in Jamaica through either slavery or indentured servitude. You have other examples like flamenco, tango, creole, Afro-Cuban, Balkan music meeting with Indian marching band music, which is a thing. And in every case, you have the clashing of cultures, which leads to a separation of identities in new territories, which is also usually expressed through language and music. But the point of the relationship is that what I mentioned before about the cue drops and the translation, it's being used as a sort of um, a, a dialect that can that can then be in group and used by those people. Now, the difference is historically, musical genres have all been created because oppressed either uh, socially, politically, or economically oppressed and depressed communities would find a way to express their grievances. And what resulted was hip-hop. It was flamenco. But let's look at flamenco, what happened when it came up through academia. So flamenco was originally the gitano or the cry of the voice, along with hand claps, the palmas, and body slaps. 
a guitar got incorporated a little bit later. Oh, really? But, yeah, yeah, it wasn't part of the original. It was wow. purely body. And probably mm. mid-19th century, I believe, is when the guitar was introduced. Now, today, the castanets are used in flamenco, and that represents the transition from the poor communities into the cafes where it was appealing to the wealthier communities. And it also represents the transition from something folks for folksy to academia. Uh, you can also say the same thing of Bartok with Hungarian music and the peasant music that he helped to bring to the opera houses, which I think quite well. But again, what is getting lost in that transition is the understanding of the culture that created and the social conditions. And then all of a sudden it's being looked at through an entire different lens from a sort of privileged position. Now, the difference here though, is that QAnon is rooted in a predominantly aggrieved and paranoid white culture. So they are actually the oppressing culture that has now adapted this strategy, probably unconsciously, but because of the media that we have today, they are, they have taken this this historical phenomenon of creating an in group of la- language and they've they've taken it as if they were the ones who were being oppressed and using it in the paranoid style and so i think for any successful academic endeavor to understand the pipeline from the creation of artistic forms or languages to actually understanding how that language was created you have to take into account the social and political conditions that created it, which is going to take a lot of unpacking of historical racism and xenophobia in America to properly understand QAnon. And I think that's why I was a little more critical of this documentary because I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. And if you want to present this information in academic settings, that has to be where you begin. And that that is my hope with conspirituality too, is I think you have to look at the for-profit healthcare system in America that led to so many of these wellness influencers who have created their own language around the immune system and terrain theory and all of these ideas to, you have to understand the capitalist structure that helped to inspire that along with the sense of privilege that the cultures that helped to create wellness culture uh, in order to actually understand the paranoid conspiracy theories that have emerged from, especially from this last year. Yeah, that would, that would be my hope, you know, along those lines that the work that we've done and, the, and, and what we're going to present today and whatever else may happen down the line, that somehow the, there, there's a, there's a continuation of the analysis into, into how people might start to be educated about these phenomena that have just sort of sprung up in the wild in these, in this perfect storm set of conditions that obviously has been, it's been coming to a head for a while, right? Especially with, uh, with wellness culture and then what's been going on on the right wing. Um, just, just the hope that, that there can grow to be a kind of field of study and a way that people are educated on this stuff. And, and I'm, I'm always idealistic about this. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but, I have a sense that healthier uh, forms of uh, community and, and, and spirituality and ways of thinking about awareness practice become possible the more this sort of 
material that we've been looking into gets fleshed out. Uh, there's there's something about the psychology. There's something about the uh, probably the the neuroscience. There's something about uh, the, the the social aspects of of what it is to be human and what we find meaningful and and what self development might look like in terms of maybe for example including uh, healthy skepticism in in your notion of what it means to uh, to develop your mind right in ways that we've previously thought of as as quote unquote spiritual. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're reminding me, Julian, of uh, one of the lessons from the article that I quoted earlier uh, around whether or not light reliably disinfects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe that's where your optimism is. I have that too. Like, I have this general sense that that uh, you know, if you can if you can articulate a problem really clearly, that uh, somehow everybody will catch on and they'll say they'll say, "Wow, well, I I shouldn't I, sh- I should recognize these red flags flying in the spiritual organization." that I'm starting to hook up with and, and things will generally get better. Um, but I also wonder, and this is a general question I have around uh, academic, um, uh, I don't know, functionality really, is uh, at a certain point, there's got to be policy implications that come from all of this intellectual labor. I mean, I think we've said, I've said over and over again from the beginning that um, uh, if, if, the U.S. had universal health care. I sincerely doubt that QAnon would have been as big of a phenomenon as it has been because the actual medical distrust and the financial stress of the entire middle swath of the country would have been that much less. And sure enough, uh, it is an American export. It's it's exploded uh, like a virus from the heartland of America. It's not, it's, it is active in other countries, but we've got to say that, that QAnon is America's own. And so like a central, I, I believe I, my gut is I don't have the data to prove it, but I would hope that acad- the academics could come up with it or at least ask the question is that a combination of UBI and universal health care would probably decrease people's vulnerability to conspiracism uh, do, on the whole. Do you have a sense that the other countries where it's taken hold have similar kinds of uh, 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 socioeconomic pressures yeah, around health care? Uh, yeah. Oh, around healthcare. Oh, healthcare. No, no. Uh, but but where 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 has it taken hold with such strength? Um, Australia, I mean, London, Canada. I mean, all predominantly white cultures. I mean, that's one of the phenomenon that we've tracked. Right. But, but they also but, have socialized medicine in some of those places. Yes, but I mean, we we aren't we aren't seeing um, uh, you know. We aren't seeing domestic terror attacks. We aren't seeing uh, well, the, the majority the, of that's the forty million guns. I oh, mean, that that is. Is. <laughs> that's part of it. That's that's part of it. They're but using I mean, boomerangs in Australia, right? right. Yeah. We you you hit upon a really important point, Matthew, which is that if to go up to the levels of academia, it has to trickle back down in some way, and that really does include policy. I mean, that's why I am a fan of Elizabeth Warren in a sense, because being an academic, she has written so intensely on policy change, which is so important. But it's also a conversation we've kind of had offline about the nature of even academic publishing. Uh, There's currently a move based in Europe called Coalition S, which is trying to make all academic papers free. 
Yeah, and, right. And and this is so important because I mean, not only do you need people to translate these articles for the general population, but you just simply need access. And when access is behind a paywall, then 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 you you bring this information up, but then you can't let it get back down. Then then you're going to get caught. And I think that's one of the main contentions that a lot of people have, especially on the right wing in America, the anti-intellectual movement with academia. It's so interesting that we've just been talking about uh, the internet providing instantaneous but also superficial access, apparently, to, to the entirety of history within an environment in which so much of uh, legitimate scholarship is actually paywalled. It's kind of absurd that you can do all kinds of quote-unquote research, uh, but actually be blocked out of journals that are asking you for $36 to look at a fucking paper for <laughs> for 24 hours, literally. Uh, yeah. And to speak of that, actually, we were very uh, kindly invited to uh, work on our presentation notes that we're going to give today and turn them into a publishable paper for July, but the paper is going to be behind a paywall. And I mean, I guess we're going to have to tell people how to get it on Sci-Hub or something like that, because that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so what does it, what does it mean to, for us to go for, from a podcasting, uh, platform to, uh, a conference, but then to be, to have that that data put behind a paywall, which is going to be reviewed by other people, like it's actually going to be verified. They're not going to publish something that that they don't feel we've supported. So it's kind of like we're, we have this opportunity to produce a piece of peer reviewed research that comes out of the work that we've done over the past year, and and our our own listeners aren't going to have access to it. It's very weird. To this point about uh, integration, um, you know, because I've been wondering about the social integration or how this material will become palpable in everyday culture, uh, I was thinking a lot about this today. Uh, I heard a great podcast from uh, W. NYC's on the media on, um, it was called No Silver Bullets. And there was a guy named Kurt Braddock, who was a guest interviewed about inoculating the public uh, against conspiracy theories. Um, and, and he, this professor has been hired actually by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which I'm sure comes with its own problems. But I mean, that's really impactful. And then we have somebody like Imran Ahmed, who looks like he turned away from an academic career to do what he does. But then I was thinking, oh, we've interviewed scholars on our podcast. We've interviewed Susanna Crockford. Uh, we've interviewed Theodora Wildcroft. I worked, I reached out to both of them and I, and I asked, um, who should hire you for what in terms of public policy and what should they pay you? And they, they sent me back these responses. So um, Wildcroft says, uh, Theo says, public health bodies should hire me to help them implement research findings into actual pedagogy that will stick as part of a team of community health advisors drawn from marginalized populations. We can tell them why all the public health campaigns for behavior change fail and they shouldn't pay me. They should fund me one-tenth of what they're already paying shiny consultants to fail to do the same thing. Uh, she says, it's the journey from research tells us people should eat five types of vegetables a day into shiny public health campaign that is totally tone deaf to food deserts, divergent bodies, and so on. So how you actually collaborate with communities to improve public health. Uh, 
I should be hired for medical humanities, basically, um, which I thought was interesting. And I hope she gets hired. Uh, and then I asked Susanna Crockford, uh, who is um, currently researching, you know, people like Jake Angeli. Uh, so she wrote back and she said, the field of new religious movement studies may seem fringe from a public policy perspective, but it has much to offer, especially in terms of education, religious freedom, and national security policy. Conspirituality currently presents a challenge to public health and national security in countries around the world. For example, a thread of my current research addresses the Q shaman and his role in the capital siege. Public agencies concerned with these challenges should fund the work of individual researchers and research groups like Inform, uh, which he works for, to help understand the growing threat to public health and democracy posed by conspirituality in contextualized, nuanced, rather than generalized and discriminatory ways. How much they should pay is really up to them, she says, but I personally believe no worker should earn significantly less than or more than $75,000 per year. Um, so those are the answers from our scholars. And uh, I've, I've, I say hire them, hire them both, hire them all. 